We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. In 2017, the acclaimed West End maestro and award-winning musical director Mike Dixon graced the Beyond the Title microphone with fascinating tales of his 40 years in entertainment. With a glittering 40-year career which has taken him all over the world, working with some of the most iconic artists of the 20th and 21st centuries, including Dame Shirley Bassey, Lord Lloyd Webber, Lizzie Ragouse, Sir Tim Rice, Don Black, Sir Alton John, Lionel Richie, Sir Tom Jones, Lady Gaga and Queen. From the Royal Variety Performance to the Glastonbury Festival, Mike has made a significant contribution to musical entertainment and his story is among one of the most varied in showbiz. After thankfully coming out of the other side of a cancer diagnosis, Mike began to reflect on his career and started to write his long-awaited autobiography. I caught up with a great friend of Beyond the Title ahead of the long-awaited release of Turn Around and Take a Bow to talk books, batons, and his recollections on an unprecedented career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Mike Dixon. Mike, firstly, welcome back to Beyond the Title. It feels like a lifetime ago since our first podcast. How was lockdown for you, and how did it feel pioneering at the online concert with your amazing daughter, Meg? Well... I mean, obviously, the, the lockdown came as such a shock to everybody. Um, and my my younger daughter, Meg, just happened to be finishing a course at E15 um, acting school. And we said to her, come back to us for your last two terms, rather than, you know, be locked down in South End. Come back to us. And, of course, she's like a little whirling dervish and wanted to play if you like and we got and we came up with this idea of putting this little instagram um live concert each sunday sunday lockdown with meg and um it was quite fun it was it was it was great for me i mean it started off as her idea of course and it you know and it remained her idea but but she very quickly co-opted her dad in to play piano and sometimes play guitar and sometimes sing along as well so it was actually quite good for me to um to keep my chops going and actually do a few things you know um uh, yes i did really enjoy it and i'm very proud of meg for instigating the whole thing There are quite a few like lockdown things that were set up in theatres. Uh, did you ever think of taking it like to a larger scale? It would have been. I mean, we could have done that, but I, the opportunity didn't arise, so so it 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 didn't happen. I mean, I was very impressed with how so many people dealt with their own particular demons in lockdown, and some people were able to do 
kind of sometimes quite extraordinary things. Um, there were all sorts of um, actor friends who I saw, you know, being publicised as joining Amazon, doing you know anything but anything to 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 make a buck for their family, because as we know, the the entertainment industry was basically for a year and a half at least kind of zilch you know there was nothing going on you know I, I i kind of at my you know great age of 65 now 64 well 65 just gone 65 i'm i'm kind of in that much more able to deal with it situation but if it had happened 20 years ago you know when when the mortgage was at its peak and you know all that stuff was going i, I don't know what i would have done quite frankly very difficult for so many people now, they say that everyone has a book in them. Having had the pleasure of knowing you for the best part of a decade, you're always very humble about your achievements. So why did you feel now was the right time to put your life on paper? Well, I suppose it does come down to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, of what you do in lockdown. And I started, I'd done a couple of podcasts with some other friends as well. And one of the things that, that, came up in those podcasts was why don't you write down you know some of the things that have happened to you some of the crazy um, exploits and crazy gigs and crazy concerts and the amazing people that I've had the fortune of working with why don't you write it down so I started um, I think it was about the it was the end of 2020 beginning of 2021 and I started writing stuff down basically for my two daughters for Lily and Meg um, so that in the future they'll have a little record of of dad you know what, what dad what dad did and um, and 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 it kind of snowballed from there if you like and so I think I you know by the time I'd got to 50,000 words or something I was I was nowhere near nowhere near through I think I was still in the sort of 80s or 90s so um, it was like oh maybe I better carry on and do this properly so I did and um, you know managed to finish the first draft in August I think it was 2021 and then started editing and as you know Josh from your own writing you start you 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 know you look back at it all and you edit and re-edit and cut and sort out and then you have to proofread and then you have to find a publisher and oh gosh it takes forever you know but I'm I was very lucky and I've got my, got myself a publisher and as we know it comes out on the 28th of June <laughs> so turn around and take a bow is the name of the book were there any other titles in the running don't forget the baton doesn't make a noise well exactly I always say the baton never makes a noise of course that is one of my sayings that, but but seriously, when I first started writing it, the title that was in my head was Where is One? Okay, which is a double, which has a double meaning, which is obviously where am I? Where is one? Where am I? What have I done? Uh-huh. But it's also in musical terms, where is one is, uh, is, is what an orchestra frequently gently cries to itself when they don't know where the hell their conductor is in terms of the number of beats in the bar. Or where is one in the sense of when you see a conductor conducting in four. So, and, and, and the, the, the orchestra is so complicated. This, the orchestra play 
generally, if they're playing classical music, the orchestra will play late to the one beat. They'll play late to the beat. So they'll go, if, if you can imagine that, that I, I'll, I'll try and make a click noise which is where my finger would be on the one. So one, that's the, the, the sort of, so there's one and one, but the orchestra will play one. One, two, three, four. So they would play after the beat. It's very complicated and very difficult. And that's why I didn't use that as the title. <laughs> so, so I ended up, I thought I, I, what I did was, um, I remembered an old conductor joke and the old conductor joke, um, goes like this. And this is this, I, I'm so bad at telling jokes, but I'll try anyway. So, it's the first time that a certain conductor has stood in front of an orchestra and the orchestra have put a piece of paper in front of him on top of the score. Okay. And the piece of paper reads thus, wave your arms around until the music stops, then turn around and take a bow. So that's the basic tenet of the idea that, that, and that actually corresponds a little bit to, and, and the, and the baton doesn't make a noise as well. So, do you think anyone could become a conductor, or do they need to have like an ear for what they're doing? Well, there have been a couple of programs, haven't there, where various celebrities have sort of taken a baton, and it the the people who've done best are those people who have a musical ear, a musical. It doesn't. They don't need to necessarily. In that context, they don't need to necessarily be a great reader of music, but but in terms of the the celebrity thing and and whether they can wave their arms around at the right time, it's to do with how you understand how you feel music and how you can convey music. Of course, if you're going to stand up in front of professional musicians, then you need to be able to answer any question that they might give you. And you need to be able to have the authority to know so that they understand that you know what you're doing. An orchestra is a very, very fine leveller of people and they will find any Achilles heel that you might have very, very quickly. Um, and yes, so I, so no, I, I'm going to go back on that. I'm going to say anybody can stand in front of an orchestra and anybody can wave their arms around, but only a few of us lucky ones have the chance of making music when we do so. As I said in the introduction, since we last spoke on the podcast, you've had a tough time with your health, but thankfully you beat it. However, how was this able to give you a whole new perspective on your achievements in life? 
Well, I think because 2018, if I just quickly, I'll briefly mention it. Yeah, 2018, I had um, tongue and throat cancer, and um, and I had some fairly un- unpleasant treatment to um, to eradicate it, which I'm happy to say has thus far worked. So, so yeah. that's the first, you know, a good thing. Um, what what having cancer did was made me completely think about what life really what life really means because if you know when you're suddenly faced with with um your own mortality you do inevitably think about what, what are those things that are important and of course music is important and of course work and all that sort of stuff is important but it's nowhere near as important as family and life mm. that's and, and and i suppose if if anything has come out of that then what has come out is that i feel much more able to say no to things now and i'm starting to think about a much more relaxed life where I do the things that I want to do with the people I want to do them with. talks about on any of his podcasts he obviously celebrates the careers of his guests but doesn't talk about that other personal side as it were of yeah. life itself you know and that must have been a real what do you say no 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 yeah that must have brought it home for you well I think you know we all have a um, a persona, if you like, a mask that we that we exist behind in our professional life, and um, and suddenly the mask that I had to deal with was the mask that I had to wear for radiotherapy to have to have the radio and and, and that and suddenly that brought everything into stark contrast and what really is what what it what am I yeah what what am I what am I doing? What should I be doing? What can I do to 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 help more? What can I do that's yeah? It just opened up all sorts of new and interesting ideas and thoughts, and but it made it made me more than more than anything else in the world. It made me realise how important family and friends are. 
I listened to a recent podcast with you and our mutual friend, the great Colin Edmonds, where you said that your three heroes were Phil Silvers, Eric Morecambe and Andre Previn. What was it about these figures which inspired you? Apart from Previn, these figures weren't necessarily connected with music. So was there ever a time when your passions lay elsewhere? Well, it's a funny one, isn't it? I, Eric Morecambe, as I was growing up, Morecambe and Wise were the, you know, all the great Christmas specials, in fact, the Christmas special with Andre Previn, of course, was was one of the most amazing moments ever in the history of television. Possibly is the most amazing moment in the history of television. So, so the the whole sort of comedy thing was was there for me. I Phil Silvers was all about Sergeant Bilko because that was one of the first uh, programs that I remember watching as a kid uh, and and laughing out loud sometimes at. Um, and I suppose there was a period of time in my teens when, along with music, there was also I was also doing some sort of performance stuff at school. And there sadly was one show that, that myself and a few friends put on where we thought we might be the next Monty Python. We absolutely weren't. We thought we might be. But oh my! I, it, it's one of those, one of those, one of those moments where I look back and I go, "Did we really do that on stage?" I mean, we're, I, I cannot tell you how bad we must have been. It it must have been awful to watch. But anyway, I tried, I tried, and then failed. And then, you know, obviously, music and being the other side of the screen or the other side of the stage was the thing that I much preferred being. Um, I still love going to see various funny people do their thing. So, and I, do, I remember years and years ago, um, I went to see the late, great Bob Monkhouse do, do, do his stand-up at the Swansea Grand. Uh, and I, at, at, that, at the point that I went to see him, he was... Um, he was still Mr. Entertainment on telly, you know, Mr. Golden Shot and all those sorts of things. Uh, but but he that witnessing him do his stand up was still is, is one of the funniest moments that I, I have ever seen. He was just extraordinary. And obviously, Colin, as the as the holder of, of Bob Monkhouse's joke books, is is probably the best person in the world to know just how how brilliant Bob Monkhouse was. But Going back to Eric Morecambe and uh, and Phil Silvers, and then Andre Previn, I, I I kind of I kind of love the 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 mixture of those three people, um, and 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 funnily enough, Andre Previn, if you read his book, um, which is called No Minor Chords, which is basically about his time um, in Hollywood. Um, and it's called No Minor Chords because one of the uh, one of the um, producers, one of the producers, one of the heads of the uh, of, of the studio, came up one day and said about one particular movie, "What is it? What 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 chord is that about? It's one particular movie, um, and and it was a minor chord." And so, so he he said, "Well, it just makes me feel too sad, and it's it's totally wrong. So we're, we're not having any minor chords in any of our music." So they made a, a a little plaque to go in the in the composer's room, which said, "No minor chords," 
which of course is complete nonsense because you have to have major and minor chords to make anything work. But, you know, there we are. So, so yes, Eric Morecambe, Phil Silvers and Andre Previn. And I, could, I mean, the list could go on forever, but, but those would be my three. him as the heart of entertainment uh, for you know with you having a musical background how how do you see that and how do you appreciate that well i i i think it's it's helped in my understanding or i'm being able to work because over the years i've worked with you know people like bradley walsh and and joe pasquale and um and tarby you know jimmy tarbuck and um who else oh and and in in terms of writing um both david Badil and ben elton so I, I i i guess having um having a small understanding of how comedy works um has helped me because sometimes if you're if you're creating a routine for somebody a musical routine for somebody you you might need to. It's not that you're trying to make a, jo- a musical joke out of something, but you might you might tramp if you might if 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 there's if there's a, a joke within the lyric, then you might you might make it make the music tramp all over the 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 the, the payoff of the of the gag. So you have to be very aware when you're working with those sorts of people, where to be in and where to be out. Yeah, and where to leave something leave the space for the audience to get something or the audience to you know yeah does that answer the question I think it does I think so yeah Uh, (laughs) we all have influential people in our lives who help shape us how significant was your music teacher Trevor Farrow in shaping your determination to have a career in music well I talk about this in the book and I, I, I think I was humongously lucky that I went to this school in Plymouth called Devonport High School, uh, where this young uh, desert boot corduroy trouser or corduroy jacket wearing 20, I think he was, when I joined that school, I, I was 11 and he would have been 25. He was quite new as a teacher. So, and he was the music teacher at, at my grammar school. And uh, he was, he just inspired and, and, and was able to make music 
uh, I, I, although you know, I already had a, a, an inkling that music was where where I was wanting to go, but he was able to show me just how all forms of music have a place. It wasn't a case of we're doing a music lesson now, so we have to do classical. It was it was we're doing a music lesson now, so let's find let's let's play a little bit of some prog rock or let's play a little bit of rock and roll let's play a little bit of uh, uh, of classical yes and let's do some singing and let's do this but it was always a, a complete conglomeration of different styles so I thank him for giving me that eclectic understanding and appreciation of music and also that he he allowed me as a young you know, because as I got older um, in in school, and there were that three or four of us who were quite good at music, so so we would we would find ourselves down in the music room quite a lot. Um, you know, really just getting into the you know doing a bit more work, doing a bit more practice, doing a bit more listening, doing a bit more getting a bit more out of Trev as well. Uh, he introduced me to. Um, orchestral music. He used to conduct the Plymouth Youth Orchestra, so I used to go and and try and play the oboe, which uh, again is not something that anybody else would want to hear, but I did try, uh, and uh, um, and I just, I, th- I, I every, you know, there are so many people who talk about how important one teacher was to them in their life. I can honestly say I am, you know. I'm one of those lucky, lucky, lucky people who had someone who inspired and and gave me such and joy out of out of music, you know. What would you say to him now if you met him or saw him? Well, I, I, funnily enough, because we have kept in touch, because I, 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 I played for his retirement uh, down in Plymouth, oh, um, gosh, that's about 15 years ago now. Is it? Yes, about 15 years ago, because I think he's 80 this year. So I've promised him that I'll go and see him um, in July when I'm down in the West Country. Um, but... So I kind of when I saw him when I saw him at his retirement, I was able to say thank you at that point because I went in. They did um, uh, a kind of "This is your life" for him as a surprise, and um, and so I was one of the the, the sort of um, hidden and and surprise guests, you know, um, and I was able to say a thank you to him. Uh, you know, at that point, but he'd seen he'd seen you know some of the mad things that I'd done, and and he had a you know he knew that I would sort of made it okay in the business. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, Are you going to give him a free copy of the book? <laughs> I have. I am going to. Yes, I am. I am. I am. I am. It's the simple answer. Yes. Yes. So, aspects of love proved a significant part of your career. What did you learn from this? Aspects. Aspects was um, sort of 1989, 
And I'd been asked originally to be assistant musical director on it. And then after three or four weeks, it became apparent that the person who was the musical director um, had to be um, gently moved out. And I was asked to take over. Aspects gave me um, the first long running show that I was involved in because I'd had up to that point through the 80s I'd had lo- done lots of West End shows lots of um, touring shows but they were all very short um, and much too much shorter than they you would have liked them to have been you know shows that were cut off after six weeks or or 12 weeks or or, or, or a tour that was only going to be four months anyway but Aspects suddenly I was presented with a long term show uh, it ended up I ended up conducting the show for two years it started my relationship with Andrew Lloyd Webber and the person who I have to thank for all that was one of my mentors whilst I was going through the 80s one of another musical director a man called Mike Reed not Mike Reed the actor or Mike Reed the DJ this is Mike Reed R-E-E-D who is uh, a musical director, used to be Tommy Steele's musical director, was the original conductor of Phantom of the Opera. So Mike had already worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber on Phantom, and Mike was asked to be musical supervisor of Aspects, and he asked me to be assistant on Aspects, and that's then what happened. I was assistant and took over from the musical director who was cut out. But Aspects was a very difficult show, because it was a completely through sung show no 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 dialogue it was sung the whole way through so there was music from beginning to end and and it also was a show that, that one of the few times that andrew's written a show without a rhythm section so there, there it wasn't like you know a piano bass and drums or piano guitar bass and drums at all it was all about a little chamber ensemble. So it was string quartet and French horn and clarinet and flute and a little bit of percussion and a piano and a little bit of keyboards. So it was a, it was very much a, um, a it was a bit more, what I'd previously done in my career was much more mainstream musical theatre or, or pop-based musical theatre. And this was a proper bit of sort of, classical based musical theatre if that's that makes sense I mean Aspects is not classical obviously it's Andrew Lloyd Webber but it it has um it's it has that sort of Puccini-esque opera-esque you can drive I discovered that I could drive the show I could actually become emotionally if I was emotionally involved with the characters on stage and and, and then I could actually become part of and 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 really help to make the audience understand what was going on because if i didn't engage and if i just let the music wash then i was not well everybody everybody just did this it just relaxed too much but if i if i as musical director stayed absolutely 100% with each character and lived what they were singing as as they were singing it, then that conveyed itself to the audience by a drive-through of the whole music. And, and it, it was really quite fascinating. I didn't, I had no idea at that point that, that we could be as um, 
motivational, if you like, as 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 much of a driving force. But it was so it was it was a real it was a really really fascinating thing to do. I don't want you to dish the dirt on anyone in particular, but were there performers that were better than that than others? Well, it, it, <laughs> over the years, over the years, or or, or just about aspects. <laughs> Just act aspects really because when you're in that role, I suppose it's better for you if you know that the the uh, performers know exactly what they're doing and where they're supposed to be. Yeah, I, 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 there is one little story that I, I actually didn't put in the book. Um, there, there was one moment where one of the... Um, it's a long run, okay? First, that's the first thing to say. It's a long run, and, and when you're doing a long run, you kind of, both performers and orchestra and, and conductor, everybody gets to certain sort of plateaus where and you and you sometimes find yourself relaxing on the plateau and forgetting that the audience is watching it for the first time so so that that's really hard sometimes to to make your performance whether it's on stage or in the pit your performance fresh and so there was one there was one actor and I won't I won't tell you his name and and I I I absolutely roasted this particular actor after the show because he had just walked through the whole section the whole the whole part of the the you know the 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 show that he was in he just walked through it and i and i really was hugely upset at him Uh, and um and then spool forward to um i was doing i was doing a, a concert in in the festival hall in I think about 2014, 2015. And he had, he ended up being one of those actors in this concert that I was doing. And we had um, a, a really nice um, sort of meeting together. And he said, Mike, I know you were so upset at me when I was doing, you know, aspects and all that. And I want to tell you, that when you did shout at me and when you did say all those things, it really made me think. And, and I, I made, I, you know, I was a young, young, I was a young, you know, actor, learning mid-craft and all the rest of it. And what you said to me has really stayed with me all the time. And ever since in my, in my, my so I was really chuffed about that, actually. That, that, that you know, because there was a part of me that was, that regretted having, you know, balled him out, but then to be told that actually it was it it, it, it had it had stood him in good stead was probably a good thing. 
to be surrounded by more experienced heads like yourself so you can actually advise them and have a positive impact on them yeah 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 i think i think that's i think that's right and i think some you know sometimes it's not it's not often in my career that i've had to um you know lay down the law to somebody i kind of i try not to have a confrontational kind of way of working um but in a way, I'm quite glad that I did do that to that guy because of, you know, because of the result. You've spoken many times about your involvement in the Royal Variety Performance, and I don't want to cover old ground, but how did this elevate your status within the West End and open you up to opportunities which arguably might have been more difficult to obtain? Well, it, interestingly, I... Uh, uh, the last time we talked about the Royal Varieties, I don't think we ever talked about how I got into the Royal Varieties. But it's actually because of aspects that I got into doing Royal Varieties. Mm. Because whilst I was doing aspects, Andrew came um, one just before one show, had a, had a little meeting with me and said that there was going to be in the... This would be 1989... So he said that there's going to be a, um, a, a, a sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber segment in the Royal Variety this year. Uh, and will you look after it? Will you be musical supervisor for it and look after it? And so suddenly, I that you know, that was my very first involvement with the Royal. Two years later, I was assistant uh, musical director. And two years after that, I was musical director for it. So... It was kind of thanks to Andrew that 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 I sort of started doing royals, and actually, what 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 came out of what what came out of the royals was then an involvement with some um, ITV bigwigs, and even though the, the royal varieties that I did were always ITV shows, there I also got contacts at, at the BBC through doing those shows as well, so. Um, it's funny when you think about it. If they both, all the royal stuff and all the telly stuff came out of me doing aspects of love. If I hadn't done aspects, I wouldn't have been asked to do that. That first, you know, be involved in that first. I hadn't really thought about that before. But, but I think when I was writing the book, I sort of all the sort of bits of the jigsaw kind of made sense. Which is another reason why it's quite a good thing for anybody to write down stuff and, and and try and put it together and see you know see what your what the journey of your life has been yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, because you never really think about all the bits and how they're put together, really. 
Sorry, say that again. Because you never really think about the bits and pieces and how they all go together. No, exactly. Exactly. It's only when you it's only when you take stock and you start to oh yeah. So if that hadn't if that hadn't happened, that wouldn't have happened, and and all that you know, the the way that our lives are seemingly uh, random, but then when you look back, you go ah yes. There was a pathway. There was a pathway that I seemed to be finding myself on. I If Josh had never watched the Royal Variety documentary, then he would never have met you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There, were, there were those ones where I was talking about the, was it talking about the Shirley Bassey one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you've directed some of the world's most accomplished performers, from Julie Andrews to Lady Gaga. What's the hardest thing about working with big names? Oh, big names, big names. Well, I suppose, first of all, there's a, the entertainment industry is frequently a great leveler. And if you're working with somebody, then you're both exposed. And, and so my, what I've always found is that the best thing that I can do is to try my best to make the person I work with feel like they're the best. Does that make sense? So, so um, I do remember. I do. I have to tell you this story. I do mention this in the book. I, Julie Andrews was um, was asked to be the voice of Polynesia in Doctor Doolittle when we did it in 1998 with Philip Schofield playing Doctor Doolittle. And Leslie Brickus, the great and wonderful Leslie Brickus, who sadly died last October, Leslie, um, uh, he said to me, "Well, look, I know Julie really well. Why don't I see if she can, she if she will come in and record Polynesia?" So, so that was absolutely fantastic. She turned up in in the rehearsal room and started sort of mingling and all the rest of it. And then a little bit later on in the day, she came and sat down beside me at the piano. And and we started playing through um, my. No, it wasn't my friend the doctor. It was um, it was one of the other songs. Anyway, um, doesn't matter what song it was. She was singing a few lines in it, <laughs> and um, and I suddenly I'm sitting at the piano playing this through with her sitting next to me, and I just suddenly stopped, and she looked at me and went, "What? What?" And I said, "You're Julie Andrews." <laughs> And I'm just, and I'm, 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 just me, you know. And I, I just can't quite believe it. And I, I, and it, how lovely it is to be here with you. And she put her hand on my knee, and said, "I'm loving it too." And we carried on. It was absolutely brilliant. So, I, some of the, you know, some, some of the, 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 the artists that you work with. You know, they obviously turn up with expectations, and and sometimes they can be a little bit tricky, and you have to, um, you know, sometimes duck the arrows as they get as they get slung. You know, but most of the time, if you work on the premise that 
they are as um, concerned or nervous or anxious about making sure that they uh, do the best that they can. And if they realise that you're concerned and anxious and you want to make sure that they do the best that they can, then things tend to be okay. I mean, with Dame Shirley, case in point, it was always, you know, when in my, um, was it six years or whatever it was with Dame Shirley, that I always felt that she she knew that I was there for her. And that's how we managed to, you know, get on. So... Yeah, and they need you just as much as you need them. Yeah, well, yes, I suppose... I mean, what you mustn't do, what you must never do is show them how nervous you are. Because <laughs> that, that ends up being a, you know, a hiding, a hiding to nothing. Because if they, if they, if they feel that you're, uh, not up to it in some way, then, then that will make them more anxious. So, so there's always a sense of, and I suppose there's a sense of, 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 that's what I was talking about earlier, that there's usually this mask, you have this mask in front of you, this mask of professionalism. Um, and at the end, at the end of every gig, you then turn around and go, I got away with it again. So there's that kind of thing. And I know it, it, there are not just musicians, there are, you know, actors, c- comics, all sorts of people who at the end of every gig go, got away with it. You know, that, and, and, and the most professional people will say, got away with it again. Because you never, you never believe that you're good enough. Because you're always trying to be better. Your mum, Jean, comes across as the most amazing woman. You've told me before that it was through your parents' influence that you learned your sense of manners. How did this give you the tools to help you negotiate arising situations as an MD? I think my parents, mum, mum was very much, um, you know, home roost and all that sort of stuff. But mum was brilliant at keeping relationships with, um, with, with um, friends and, and relations. And people would come down and, and stay with us down in Plymouth. And somehow we'd fit them into the little two up, two down house that we lived in, in Kiev. Um, so mum was just always very conscious of keeping friends, cl- keeping friends near and, and, and keeping a relationship with friends. So that was good. Dad was um, ended up working at Farley's Infant Foods and ended up being the, re- the union rep and managing to stop um, a, a number of times, I believe he managed to stop. Um, Farley's going out on strike or the, or the main workforce going out on strike because dad had this inherent sense well he had a, an inherent sense of right and wrong which is what I've got from both mum and dad absolutely but he also had this diplomacy thing about him and he was so good at making you know so this is what you think and this is what you think so let's see if we can find a way of you know melding those two ideas and, and, and see rather than rather than you're entrenched in this idea and you're entrenched in it. See if we can put the two ideas together and find a way through. So dad's modus operandi was always keep talking. 
It was always, always keep talking. And he also, there was another thing that dad used to do, um, which I always, just always remembered, remember because it's a good leveler. When he would, when he would go cheers to you with a glass, he would go, he would, he would put the glass first of all above your glass, never above you, and then he'd put it underneath, never below you, and then he'd chink, always with you. So never above you, never below you, chink, always with you, which is quite good. You know, it's a really lovely, um, yeah, it's about being, you know, nobody, nobody's, nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's, nobody's bigger, you know, nobody should be more important in that way. Everybody should be able to get along and make sense. So I'm I'm lucky that I had all those you know those good things from mum. I know the diplomacy thing is certainly a good thing to have from dad because I've used that a number of times. Growing up in Plymouth, was there a big contrast in living conditions between your childhood in Plymouth to the beating heart of the West End? What conclusions did you draw on about the significance of Plymouth in making you the person you are? Yeah, Plymouth. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I think first of all. Um, I loved being in Plymouth. I loved growing up in Plymouth because Plymouth has um, the great thing about Plymouth is that you're really close to Cornwall. You're really close to Dartmoor. You're really close to all sorts of lovely, lovely places. Um, there are certain places in Plymouth that are a bit unpleasant. There are also some places in Plymouth that are a bit extraordinary. I was very lucky. I went to a really fantastic school where, of course, I'd met Trev and a load of other people as well but where I'd, I'd had this fantastic teacher in Trofaro but I was I, I think I always knew from my sort of musical escapades with people that I wanted to get away I wanted to you know go up to the smoke as, as it used to be called going up to Plymouth uh, going up to London and and I I tried to do as many. I, I got I got involved in the Devon Youth Orchestra, Plymouth Youth Orchestra, um, and then when the chance came to go to music college, because it was going to be music college rather than um, university. I did toy with university, but but it was like no, I need music college is more about hands on music, so so I want to do that. It was, I was so excited when I got up to, 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 to London. I do remember, I remember being, I think I was about 14 when I went, there was a big uh, trip from our Plymouth Youth Orchestra up to see uh, Belshazzar's Feast by William Walton in the Royal Albert Hall, which is a big, big, big monster of a piece uh, with full orchestra, huge choir, soloist, um, and it's it's so 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 exciting, and I, as a fourteen year old going up there, and, and I remember going into you know you get off the coach and you sort of make your way into the Royal Albert Hall, and and I don't Josh, have you been in the Albert Hall? Yeah, yeah. So you, you know you walk in and and it just seems so vast, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and I, I remember that feeling of, oh, my God, this is incredible. I wonder if I can I wonder if I can be here. I wonder if I can, you know, I, wonder, I never really thought I, I wonder if I wonder if I could conduct here, even though now, of course, I have a couple a few times. But I, 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 I suppose it gave me a sense of 
wonder about this amazing place up up the line called London, and I wanted to go there. So when you first conducted at the Royal Abbot Hall, did you then remember that moment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I did. I really, I really did. And and um, I can't remember what it was I was doing. Um, but I, I'd remember it was about halfway through the first half of whatever it was. And I suddenly had this wave of, of, of memory, of nostalgia, of, 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 and I also, um, you know, that sort of uh, sudden sort of getting all fluttery and all the rest of it. And I had to sort of take some deep breaths, take, take some deep breaths while I was conducting to, 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 to get control of myself again. Yeah. So it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> when Josh went to Royal Abbott Hall, Len Goodman stole his seat. <laughs> <laughs> How dare that lovely lender? <laughs> it was at school that you saw your headmaster play the Hebrides Overture as you came into assembly on the record player. What effect did this have on you? Well, yes, that was primary school. That was which was brilliant because I I had this. Um, I mean, I know we've talked about Trev Farrow in my in my uh, grammar school. My, uh, but in my primary school, which was a little school in Devonport called Drake Primary School, I had this lovely, lovely uh, headmaster called Mr. Parrish. And, and very frequently, it wasn't every day, but very frequently, the music that was playing as we came in for school assembly was the Hebrides Overture, Fingal's Cave by, by Men- Mendelssohn. And it had a... It, kind of I suppose stayed as one of my favorite pieces and then I I was able um, on one of the Friday night of music nights that I did quite early on I was able to say oh could we do could we do Fingal's Cave could we do the Hebrides Overtures I'd love to do it and I'd never done it before Uh, and so I remember standing on that particular occasion and 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 going oh my goodness me this is I can I can remember me the little six-year-old me walking into school assembly and hearing this music and here I am standing in front of this wonderful orchestra the BBC concert orchestra and we're creating this music so so that 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 was you know a nice I think I think it it the effect the effect of that, because also Mr. Parrish was the, the one who um, I, I got my first piano from. But you'll have to read the book to discover how I got that first piano. <laughs> no, he, he, he was he was a, a, a very, very. Yeah, I, listen, I, I have I have been so lucky to have such amazing teachers. Oh, 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 oh,
He didn't put the piano story in for that exact reason. Ah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> So what message do you want the reader to take away from the book? What message? That's a really difficult question, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, when you when you start writing a book about yourself, it's a bit bleh because you're sort of letting everything everything out. I suppose what I would most want to say is that with a little bit of application and a little bit of 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 a little bit of ability, you can achieve all sorts of extraordinary things. And I've, 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 you know, over the course of my 40 odd year career, I have, you know, I found myself conducting Royal Variety shows, conducting big shows in the London Palladium, going all around the world, working with all sorts of iconic and amazing people. And I, it, I, I, it sounds so cliché to say, but I, I can do I, I, because I've been able to do that. Then, with that application, you can. So I, just, I suppose I also want to show that it's kind of it, it's normal. <laughs> How can it be normal doing the same this stupid thing that I do? But 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 for me, but for me. That that sense of going out and 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 waving my arms around and 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 you know everybody having a good time is is just brilliant. I'm so happy that I've been able to do that. The fact that you know I had the big old lump of of, of cancer in 2018 and and then we've had COVID and and now I'm thinking of relaxing stuff anyway. I think I think all that all that is important, but but. I think the, the the main thing about reading the book, if you do read the book, is the joy that I've had from music. There, how's that? So, where can people buy a copy of the book? Well, it is uh, at all. Uh, you will be able to order it from all good bookstores, uh, and you can get it from Amazon and on the. Uh, Troubadour Webster, Troubadour are the, are the publishers under their imprint Matador. So if you go to, if you search, I think if you search Troubadour um, books, but you can get it. Um, shall I, shall I read out the website for you? Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll have to get it. Hang on a second. Um, but, but it, it's quite straightforward because it is or troubadour.co.uk and then you search bookshop how's that and you can pre-order it and and you can pre-order it and you can pre-order oh yes indeed yes you can Yes, he's pre-ordered it. Thank you, Josh. I, I, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I, um, I, I mean, I, 
listen, I'm, I'm under no illusions. I, I am not a famous person. I am, I, I've, I've worked with lots of amazing people and this is not, it's not going to be a bestseller. But if it does sell a few, then that would be wonderful. And, and I hope that some people will enjoy following the journey of my life and the weird and wonderful things that I've done and the little jokes that have happened on the way. It's about your time in entertainment, which, you know, entertainment's fading away, and now you've got a lovely record of it. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a mention of a certain certain Josh Barry in it as well. Oh, no, don't say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a... <laughs> Does he need to get his lawyers involved? Doesn't need to get. <laughs> oh, bless you! There we are. Um, there's one more question. The final one is: What's next for Mike Dixon? Uh, well, I am doing a concert in Malta uh, in the first week of July. A big concert. Uh, I did one last year. Uh, it was for the BBC, but, uh, I, but I'm doing a big one, um, and it's all sorts of. Um, big what are we doing we're doing a concert of great uh, a whole mixture of music but it's all the sort of the, the the songs that have achieved that are from groups and people who have achieved over a hundred million record sales i think we start at around a hundred million and then work up to 250 million to 300 million record sales so so it's a concert of extraordinary music including, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody, because Bohemian Rhapsody has to be in it, you know, full stop. So, yeah, so that's 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 the next thing. Um, and um, and there might be a, a little TV series as well. But there's there's, there's I, I, I'm just relaxing. <laughs> How can I be relaxing? But I am relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> So the baton is still making a noise, even though it doesn't actually make a noise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. The the baton, the baton never makes the noise. (laughs) (laughs) Very good, very good. Thank you very much for today, Mike. Thank you, dear Josh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. 
Thanks again, and hopefully see you next time.